we continue this time we will have the last speaker who will be explaining Kinnis here at the New Springville Jewish Center Tishabov program in Staten Island and that is Rabbi Yosef Siegel in memory of his grandfather Rabbi Yosef Siegel The next kinna is kinna Lamed Vov, 36. It's on page 328 in the Art Scroll. This kinna begins the period, the, the kinnas that are known as the Tsioins. It's a section of kinnas that every kinna begins with the word Tsioin, and these kinnas all describe the yearning that the Jewish people have to return to Eretz Yisrael. This kinna, kinna Lamed Vov, was written by Yehuda Levi. Rabbi Huda Halevi was born in the year 1075 in Spain. He worked his way up. He, was, he became a Spanish lord. He was a physician. He was very high up in Spanish society of that time. He was one of the leaders of the Jewish people. He was also known as a great poet. And he's most famous for being the author of the Sefer Akuzari. The Sefer HaKuzari is one of the great works of Jewish philosophy, which outlines a conversation between a Khazar king and Rabbi Yehuda HaLevi, proving the authenticity of Judaism over the other monotheistic religions. The story is told about a conversation between an old Jew from Europe and a young Jew who was born here in America. They were both very successful. They both lived in Manhattan, and they had the following conversation. The older fellow said to the younger fellow, let me tell you the difference between you and I when Mashiach finally comes. I'm going to tell Mashiach, you want, I know you want everybody to come to Yerushalayim, but I need two weeks. I have to liquidate my assets, sell my real estate, take care of everything I have to do, and then I'll be more than happy to join you in Yerushalayim. But he said to the younger fellow, he said, you're going to tell Mashiach, Mashiach, you're making a mistake. What are you doing in Yerushalayim? You belong here in Manhattan. And it's a cute story, and the question is, you know, what exactly are we yearning for to return to Eretz Yisrael? Why was this younger fellow so, so wrong in what he said? I believe that this kinna helps us understand the answer at least begin to understand the answer of what we're yearning for in this great desire to return to Eretz Yisrael. I'll read some of the lines of the kinnis, of the kinna. The kinna says, Sham hashchina shchunalach, v'yoytzich pasach l'molshari shachak shareich. For there, in Sion, the divine presence resides, and there your Creator has opened gates for you opposite the gates of heaven. The Gemara in Ksubis tells us that Hadar is Kamisha that anybody who lives outside of Eretz Yisrael, it's as if he had no God. He has no God. Now, obviously, we know one can worship God outside of Eretz Yisrael. So, what is the meaning of this Gemara? The simple meaning of this Gemara is that you can't compare worshiping God in Eretz Yisrael as in worshiping God in Chutzlaritz. In Eretz Yisrael, everything is on a completely different level. And that, that, that's what these words mean, that Shom HaShchunolach, there the Divine Presence actually resides. If we go further in the Kinnah, there's a line that says, aver A breath of life for our souls is the air of your land. 
We all know that a person is made up of a goof, a body, and a neshama, a soul. And the goal of a Jew is for the neshama to win over the body, the battle of the spiritual over the physical. And the Kinnah is telling us that chayi neshama is aver artzeich, that the actual air of Eretz Yisrael is the air that, that contains a spiritual energy for the neshama that can't be compared anywhere else. If we go further in the Kinnah, it says, Shinru Pasris Hayarchucha Begodlon. Can Shinar, which is Bavel, and Pasris, which is Egypt, the great civilizations of the time, compare with you? And can their worthless deities be likened to your Urim Betumim? What does this mean? This means that going back to that story, Manhattan has stones, it has beautiful buildings, but it is just that. It's dead, there's nothing more. It's stones and beautiful buildings, there's nothing deeper. Contrast that to Eretz Yisrael, where in the times of the Beis HaMikdash there was an Urim Vitumim. The Urim Vitumim is what the Kohen Gadol wore. You can ask a question for the Urim Vitumim, and the stones would light up with an answer. And this is what the Kinnah is coming to tell us. The Kinnah is coming to tell us that the spiritual energy, the, the closeness to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, the levels that one can attain in Eretz Yisrael, can't compare to anything outside of Eretz Yisrael. I want to read a letter that was written from Avram Grzynski to his nephew. Just a little bit of a background. Avram Grzynski was a Talmud of the Altar of Slobodka. He was actually Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky's brother-in-law. And together, just a background on the Altar of Slobodka. The Altar of Slobodka was one of the leaders of the pre-war European yeshiva world. The Slobodka yeshiva produced... Many of the Rosh Hashivas, the great Rosh Hashivas who rebuilt Tyra across the globe after the Holocaust, Baron Cutler from Lakewood was a Talmud, Talmud of Slobodka, Rebitzel Kutner from Chaim Berlin, Rebiakov Ruderman from Neri Yisrael, and the list goes on and on. And Rav Ram Gazensky was one of the close Talmudim of the Altar of Slobodka. He was a very holy Jew. I actually heard last night, I, I was listening to a shir, that Rav Ram Gazensky in the, he was such a Musar personality, he was always working on himself, that even in the ghetto, he, he would give Musar Vadim. He would give different classes on how he can improve himself. Imagine a person being in the ghetto, and what he was worried about is how, how he can work on his character and his, his Avedis Hashem. So Bavram Gazensky and Rebchatzkel Sarno were sent by the altar of Slobodka to set up a branch of the, Hever, of, of the Slobodka Yeshiva in Hebron, in Eretz Yisrael. And Rav Ram Grzynski set up the yeshiva, and then he was called back by the altar of Slobodka to come to Slobodka and to lead the yeshiva over there, where he remained until he was murdered by the Nazis in 1944. The altar of Slobodka went to Eretz Yisrael in 1925. He was there for two years until 1927, when he passed away in Yerushalayim. He's buried in Harazesim. The yeshiva remained in Hebron until 1929, the Hebron Massacre, which is 90th anniversary is, uh, is about a week and a half away on the, uh, on the 18th of Av. And, so the alt- and then the yeshiva eventually moved to Yerushalayim, where it remains till today. So the altar of Slobodka and Bavram Gazensky never spent time together in Eretz Yisrael. Bavram Gazensky wrote the following letter to his nephew bemoaning the fact that he wasn't able to be together with the altar in Eretz Yisrael. He wrote as follows, 
The early days of the altar, the altar in Europe, did not compare to the later version of the altar. He says, You couldn't compare. The altar was a different person in Eretz Yisrael. Now let's not forget, the altar was no slouch in Europe. So what changed? What changed is, is that the, 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 the koyach, the quote-unquote spiritual energy of Eretz Yisrael, had such a great effect on the altar that he was a different person. He writes further, It's only how you got the love of Eretz Yisrael. I very much wanted to come to Eretz Yisrael, B'shoshachai Admar, while the altar was still alive. Where I can learn from the altar the true Torah of Eretz Yisrael, He was understanding that the altar was a completely different person, and that his Torah was completely different just from being in Eretz Yisrael, from tapping into that Kayach that, that is in Eretz Yisrael. And he goes on about how the difference of his sikhas, his shmuz, and his divrei Torah were completely different, and the tremendous desire and difference in the altar between Eretz Yisrael and, and Europe. It was said over that somebody once asked the somebody once came to the Panovicharov asking for advice on whether or not to move to Eretz Yisrael. The Panovicharov's response was, Please don't talk to me about Eretz Yisrael because when it comes to matters of Eretz Yisrael, I'm like a shikr. I'm like a drunk with love. So I can't answer you objectively because I just love the land so much. Now, we would assume that the Panovicharov's love of the land was probably not based on the culture or the food or the aesthetics. It was the real difference, the real difference in closeness to HaKadosh Baruch Hu that one can reach in Eretz Yisrael. If we look in Sefer HaKuzari, so the Khazar king is essentially working with the premise that all religions are systems or shells. And he was looking for something real. And he questioned Rabbi Huda Halevi extensively about Eretz Yisrael. And after Rabbi Huda Halevi gave him the answers, you know, about the true difference between Eretz Yisrael and every land, he said to Rabbi Huda Halevi, so you have no excuse to be in Spain, you belong there. The story goes there, Rabbi Levi listened to him. And historians argue about exactly what happened if Rabbi Levi ever made it to Eretz Yisrael, if he passed away before he made it to Eretz Yisrael. But everybody seems to agree that he made the trip to Eretz Yisrael, and this kinna was written somewhere along the way. So we now say the kinna. <laughs> I'm <laughs> <laughs>
The next kina we will say is kina memalif, page 360 in the Art Scroll. This kina was written by the Marami Rutenberg. Marami Rutenberg was one of the giants of the generation that he lived in. He was, this was around the, 11, the late 1100s, early 1200s. He was a Talmud of the Rif. He was the Rebbe of the Rush. He was a Rav in Germany, suffered greatly in his life. At that time, not surprisingly, Germany was not that nice to the Jews. There were blood libels and pogroms and high taxes. He actually encouraged German Jews, German Jewry to flee Germany. He himself fled Germany. He was caught. He was thrown into jail. He remained in jail the rest of his life. The Jewish community, led by his Talmud, the Rush, actually raised money for his ransom. He refused, based on the mission in Gitten that says that uh, not, to allow such, not to allow the ransom to be paid, as it would encourage other such activity. Eventually, he, did pa- he passed away in jail, and many years later, the Jewish community paid to have his body taken out of jail. It was actually paid for by somebody who wanted to be buried near him, and he was able to be brought to, pop- to proper burial. As we said, he lived a very difficult life. And from everything he lived through, this next kinna is what he chose to, to write about. Next kinna is Shali Srufa Ba'esh. Talks about the famous burning of the Talmud in France in the year 1242. The story goes that there was a Mishumid, an apostate, which is a Jew who converted to Christianity by the name of Nicholas Danin. Nicholas Danin, being that he was a Jew, he was an insider, he understood that Judaism can only survive if we have the Talmud, if we have the Shas. He filed a, former, a formal complaint against the Shas with Pope Gregory. His complaint was heard. Eventually there was a public debate, which was a mere formality. And on Erev Shabbos Kaidish Parshas Chukas in the year 1242, 1,200 volumes of the Shas were brought to the town square. Um, a lot of the Jewish uh, leaders Rabbi Chilm Pariz was among them. One of the great Balitaisvis had to actually watch this. And they were burnt in the town square. Um, we have to understand that this is before the printing press. So being that it was before the printing press, every volume of the Shas had to be handwritten. So you can imagine how much work went into writing 1,200 volumes of the Shas, how much work, how much expense, and how difficult it would be to recover what was lost. Additionally, this was the time of the Bali Taisfis, the famous commentary of Taisfis, which is on the side of, every, of the Vilna Shas, all the Gemaras that we use. And many commentaries of Taisfis were lost forever in the burning of the Shas. Just as a side, um, I actually was, spoke to a historian about this, where the, uh, this year in April there was uh, the Notre Dame Cathedral burnt down. And using Google Maps, they somehow figured out that this was within a mile of where this public burning of the Shas took place. So, 
The question is that we understand that this was a tragedy, but again, Marami Rittenberg lived a very difficult life. Why was this the tragedy that he chose to write about? Additionally, there's a minute brought in halacha, that there are some people who until today, there are some communities where they fast on Erev Shabbos Parashas Chukas every year to commemorate the burning of the Shas. The question is again that unfortunately Jewish history is full of tragedies. What is it about this tragedy of the burning of the Shas in France that we commemorated until this day? The other fascinating thing about this is that any event in Jewish history is commemorated by the date. Right? Tisha B'Av is on the 9th of Av. It's not on, the, it's not on the day of the week that it happened. So why do we commemorate the burning of the Shas on Erev Shabbos Kodesh Parshas Chukas? So there's one answer that's given to that question that the giants of that generation were able to ask heaven in a dream, it was called the Shalos Chaloim, why this happened. And they were told, and the answer came back, Zois Chukas HaTayra, this is Hashem's will, similar to the red cow, the Paraduma, which is discussed in Parashas Chukas, where we don't know the reason for it. So the answer was, Zois Chukas HaTayra, and we don't know the reason why this happened. So that's how it connected to Parashas Chukas. But there is a fascinating Ramchal in Yalkut Yudiyas HaEmes, who writes about this tragedy. And he writes that just as in the times of the Beis HaMikdash, when the Jewish people were impure, they had the burning of the Paraduma to purify them. He says, so too Gaulus, this exile that we're in, he writes, we are in a state of This is a Pasuk that we read last night in Eicha. We're walking in the darkness and we need to be purified. And he said, this event, this event was symbolic, that the Torah has to be burnt in order to come out of purification. And what is that purification? Ramchal writes that that is tied into another Pasuk in Parashas Chukas, the Pasuk of Adam Kiyamas Ba'ayho. If a person dies in the tent, which the Gemara, the, which the Gemara learns out, that, that a person has to sacrifice himself for Torah. A person has to sacrifice his time. A person has to sacrifice his energy trying to understand the learning of the Torah. And a person has to work hard to learn Torah. And the Ramchal says that this was a message, that this is the only way for the Jewish people to survive in this exile. That we have to have a connection to learning Torah. And if we don't have a connection to learning Torah, then there is no way we can survive in this exile. And that we, that's how he understands the connection to Parshas Chukas. And that's also how we can understand why this was such a great, great tragedy. Because we need the Tyro, we need the Shas, we need the Talmud in order to live and survive in Golis. And when, this Tal, when, when the Gemara was burnt, when, when it was destroyed, there's no greater tragedy than that. And in fact, French Jewry, which had a glorious period of time, Rashi was from France. Many of the Balitaisis were from France. As soon as, right after this event, French Jewry, that period of French Jewry came to an immediate end because we can't exist without the Talmud, without the learning of Torah. There's, the Gemara says about Tisha B'av, Alma of the Haaretz. It says, why was, why was the land of Eretz Yisrael destroyed? Gemara says, We didn't make the proper Birch Satayra. The understanding of this is 
that obviously they made Birchus Atayra just like we all make Birchus Atayra, but the, they didn't view the Torah and the learning of the Torah as their lifeblood, as this is, this is everything, this is how we survive. And that was the great tragedy, and that led to the destruction of Eretz Yisrael. It's interesting because, you know, we talk so much about the yearning for Mashiach. The Rambam says that the whole, that the whole reason why we yearn for Mashiach is not so we can be free, is not so we can rule over the world. It's that we should be p'nuyim batayr v'chachmasam. Is that we should have the time and the ability and the freedom to learn Torah. And that's ultimately what, what it was all about. And it's, it's, there's, there's a tesis in Yavamis just to this point about this being from everything that the Maharam chose in his life to write about. And this is why this is such a great tragedy, that a person is not allowed to be kireya al-mesay, the Gemara says. If somebody dies, a person is not allowed to, I shouldn't say kireya al-mesay, a person's not allowed to make a chabura, a person's not allowed to inflict a wound upon himself. And the Taisus asks from a great Amoira who actually did inflict a wound upon himself, how is he allowed to do this? And Taisus, the second tarot of Taisus is that he was mourning the destruction of Tyra. And when you mourn the destruction of Tyra, which is eternity, that is, on the higher, that is on a higher level of mourning for any human being. And that was, how, that was why this Amoira was able to create a wound on himself, because we, we lost Nitzchius, we lost something that's eternal. That was the great tragedy of the burning of the Shas, and that was what that is what we work every day to fix to fix by learning of the Torah. Next kina we will say is on page 386. This is a kina in memory of the martyrs of Korban Europe, the Holocaust. Obviously, to talk about the Holocaust is very difficult. Um, there are so many different aspects, and everybody is affected by it. You know, there was the 
destruction of the many, the six million. I was reading yesterday that there's a re research center in, uh, in Eretz Yisrael that actually found a map from one of the German offices. And in that map was every town where Jews lived. And there were obviously the big towns, but there were towns with as little as five people that were on that map. That was the extent of the destruction of Europe and what the Nazis wanted to do, that even a town of five Jews, they wouldn't ignore. Obviously, there was the mass destruction and you know, the destruction of communities and shuls and great Hasidic courts. And you know, who knows how different the destruction of Tyre, who knows how different the world would look. Judaism would look if not for that. But there's another aspect that I just want to mention for a minute, which is that the Nazis viewed the Jews as, they referred to them as untermenschen, lower level of people. And their goal was not only to exterminate the Jewish people, it was also to dehumanize the Jewish people. And if you look, you know, if you read about the Holocaust, you can see that it was a lot more than just killing Jews. It was, it was also it was to dehumanize the Jews, to destroy their psyche, as, and you know, that, that they really are you know, a lower level of people. And what, one of the lessons of the Holocaust is that even with the, with the Nazi goal of dehumanizing people, there were Jews who at that time reached the highest levels that a human could reach. And I'll just read from Viktor Frankl, an excerpt from Man's Search for Meaning. He wrote that everything can be taken from a man but one thing, the last of the human freedoms, to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's own way. You can take everything away from a person. You can imprison him in a dungeon and starve and beat him and torture him. But the one freedom he has left, you can never take away from him. That is his right to decide how he will view what is happening to him. His book, Frankel, tells of people who shared their last bit of bread with those who were more ill and weak than themselves, while others let go of their humanity and gave into selfishness and cruelty. Those who remained human remained free. In his book, From Death Camp to Existentialism, Existentialism Victor Frankel explains how finding something positive to focus on saved people from death. It kept them from being defeated by the suffering, loss, and despair that surrounded them. And this is a lesson that whatever, anybody should go through anything that compares to that, but that whatever a person goes through in this gullus, in this exile, that he has a right to choose. He can always work on himself and choose, and as difficult as it may be, can choose how he wants to view it and how he wants to take on life's challenges.
now be finishing the kinnis. After the kinnis, we will have two speakers who will be speaking about Tisha B'Av. We ask everyone that's here to please rise. Page 390. I 
Before we continue, I just again welcome the Nakam Siegel Network, everyone listening across the world, and uh, we thank ZK, who's been here doing a phenomenal job, and we thank you for that. We want to thank our speakers who explained the kinnis so beautifully. Shlomo Yaakov Siegel, in memory of his grandfather, Rabbi Zev Siegel. Shlomo Schwartz, in memory of his father, of David Schwartz. Rabbi Kovacs, who the Kovacs, in memory of his grandfather, Eliyakim Kovacs. Rabbi Eliyahu Sonnenschein, or Shiva of Shiva Gedoyal of Archadosh and Seagate. Rabbi Yosef Siegel, in memory of his grandfather, Rabbi Yosef Siegel. We now call upon for thoughts about Tishabov, Mayor Simcha Siegel whose words will be spoken in memory of his grandfather, his mother's father, Ramosha Weisberg. The Rambam in Hilchos Malachim begins describing what it will be like when Mashiach arrives, and he writes, "Hamelech Hamashiach osid laamoid ulahachzir malchus based David liyoshno lememshalah harishoyno." The Melech Hamashiach will come and return the kingdom of David Hamelech as it was in the days of old. Umekabeitz nidche Yisrael uboyna Hamikdash. He will rebuild the Beit Hamikdash. And gather in all the dispersed of Klal Yisrael, v'choyzer and kolam eshpatan v'yomav k'shahayu mikoydem. All the laws of old will return. Makriven karbonos v'oisin shmitin v'yoyvulis k'chol mitzvasa amur abatayro. We will once again be makriv karbonos shmita yoyvul. And then the Rambam continues with a powerful lashon. V'chol mi she'enay maimin boy. Anyone who does not believe in Mashiach, oy mi she'enay mechake l'biyosay. Or does not await Moshiach's arrival? Loi Bishar Navi in Belvadhu Kaifer, not only is he denying the prophecy of all the prophets, Ella Batoiro Vamishrabenu, he is a Kaifer in the Torah Hakdosha and Mishrabenu. He is a heretic and denying the existence of the Torah and Mishrabenu. Meaning to say, you can have a Yid who is Shaimer Torah Mitzvah, fully observant. He believes in Hashem. He believes in His Torah. He believes in Moshe Rabbeinu. He even believes Mashiach will yet come and may even come today. But this Yid is not mechake l'biyasei, does not eagerly await Mashiach's arrival, seemingly says the Rambam, he is a kaifer b'tayro of Moshe Rabbeinu. The simple definition of a kaifer is someone who denies. Denies that God exists. Deny that, denies that there was a Torah given on Har Sinai. So how can it be that you have a Yid who believes in HaKadosh Baruch Hu, believes in the Torah, even believes in Moshiach, and yet because he is not Mechakel Biyasai, he does not eagerly anticipate Moshiach's arrival, the Rambam calls him a Kaifer. To help understand this Rambam, the Rashiva of Huntner Zatzal would say over a halacha based on Gemaras and Yuma, Misha Achzai Bomus, if you have a Yid on Yom Kippur who is hungry, and gets into his head a mishagas, that he needs to eat a certain food, and without it he will die, 
The halacha is it's pikuach nefesh, life and death. So he's allowed to go ahead and eat it. So here you have a fully healthy id who gets grabbed by the sickness that he convinces himself because he's hungry and he convinces himself that without this food he can't live. If you are unable to calm him down, he's allowed to go ahead and eat this food. Explains Rav Hutner Zatzal. Man has many desires. But the deepest desire man possesses is the desire for life itself. A person's life is bound up with his desire to live. If you were to pump out every ounce of the desire to live from a person, the person would die. Rahman al-Islam, a person gets sick. Sometimes the doctor talks about how much fight the person has in him. How much this person has to live for. And if he has very little desire to live, to fight, the sickness may never overtake him and he dies because what keeps us alive above all else is our Ratan Achayim, is our desire to live. A person can go so crazy and have such a taiva, such a desire for something that his entire will to live is bound up in that chafetz, in that piece of food. And without it, he has no desire to live. And it becomes a true danger, true pikuach nefesh. For with no rots and achayim, a person dies. Says the Rashiva, Klal Yisrael as a nation is also nechaz bebulmus. The soul of Klal Yisrael is also bound up in a desire that keeps us alive as a nation. That rotsen that we possess is called sipisali Yeshua, is called longing for the Geula. The deepest desire that we have, which keeps us alive, the chiyos, the life for our neshama, which without it we cannot survive, is being mitzapeh umichakel abiyas hamashiach, longing for and awaiting Mashiach's arrival. The heartbeat of Klal Yisrael is inextricably bound up with Sipisali Yeshua, with a longing for the days of Ahayah Hashem Lamelech Al Kala Aretz, by Yoimahu Yiyah Hashem Echod Ushmoy Echod. Says the Rambam, if someone is not Mitzapah for the Geula, he is removing himself from the life source of Klal Yisrael. He is removing himself from Knesset Yisrael. And removing yourself from Knesset Yisrael, that, says the Rambam, is an act of Kfirah. The word sipia, which we define as longing for the geula, comes from the root tzayfe. Tzayfe, to look, is to gaze out and to take in a vision. A man can go to the Grand Canyon, he could put his head down, look below him and focus on one specific point, and he can see beauty, the color of the rocks, the formation, but yet for him the canyon is not, that it's, all, is not all it's made out to be. But if he would just lift up his eyes and be tzaifa, he would gaze out and take in the entire majestic panorama, the grander vision, it would take his breath away. Living here in Olam Hazen, in Olam Agashmi, a physical world, very often our eyes cannot see past our own selves. We live with our heads down. We oftentimes live with the vision of how best we can enjoy this world and what we can do to make ourselves more comfortable in this world. Being mitzapeh for the Yeshua is the pshat, to lift up our heads, gaze upward, to take in a much grander view, to take in a view of Achres Hayomim Yimaisa Mashiach, 
to realize the purpose of our lives is to live for something greater than ourselves, to live for HaKadosh Baruch Hu, to be Hashem Shemayim, to bring about the day of Ahoyah Hashem Lamelech Al Kol If we live our lives with a grander view, with a vision towards the Tachlis, the purpose of creation, a vision of the day the Shoifer will be heard and every Jew from the four corners of the earth will be gathered together and we raise our lives not to live for ourselves, but to live for HaKadosh Baruch Hu. That is called Sipisa Yeshua. Reb Chaim Katz, who is here with us today, and who he himself, Baruch Hashem, survived the war to see Dairus of Yiddish Anachas, shared with me the following story about a Yid by the name of Reb Chaim Alter Roth, who lived in Bar Park until he was Nifter a few years ago. Reb Chaim Alter went through four years in Auschwitz, and Mr. Katz would very often schmooze with him about their experiences in the war. One time they were schmoozing, and Mr. Katz asked him, four years in Auschwitz, every sorrow that you went through, what was the worst day that you experienced during the war? Reb Chaim Alter didn't need to think about it. He didn't say that it was the day of a death march. He didn't say it was the trips in cattle cars, or even the unimaginable amount of death that he experienced during the war. Said Reb Chaim Alter, the worst day of the war was the day the war ended, the day of liberation. Because for four years, every day, every sorrow we went through, we lived with the longing and the hope that the only possible way this can end is with Mashiach's arrival. Imagine that, after four years of Gehenna on earth, with every form of torture a human being can take, his worst day of all those days was the day of liberation. If Reb Chaim Alter Roth was in any way living for himself, there could be disappointment, there could be frustration, even sour over the fact that Mashiach did not come. But the day of liberation would have to have some form of relief. But this Yid lived his life with a grander vision, he lived his life for HaKadosh Baruch Hu. His entire existence was bound up in Sipisali Yeshua. So when the war ended and Mashiach had not come to redeem him, rather he saw the Soviet soldiers walking into the camp, it was devastating and more painful than four years of unimaginable torture. The halacha is that when a couple is getting divorced, the husband must give the, get, must give the wife a divorce document called a get. The halacha also is that you cannot force the man to put the get in the hand of the woman, the al-karchay, against his will. However, the Mishnah tells us, a man who has no desire to give a get, and his wife will thus remain in Aguna, what do we do? Kaifin we force this man by any means necessary until he says the words, I want to give the get. How does this work and why is it not called a get al-karchay against the man's will? The only reason he said I want to give the get is because you forced him into saying it. So why is it better than forcibly taking his hand and having his hand give the wife the get? The Rambam famously brings down this halacha and says that the reason it is not called against his will is because she'ein oimrim anus 
אלא למי שנלחץ ונדחק לעשות דבר שאינו מחויב מן התורה לעשות. We don't say someone is forced unless he is forced into doing something that he is not obligated to do from the Torah. Like one who is being beaten until he decides, relents to selling an object or giving it away. Someone who is grabbed by his Yitzhahara to not perform a mitzvah or to do an Avera and he is hit and beaten until the point that he does what the Torah obligates him to do. This is not called force. Rather he entrapped himself. Therefore, one who does not want to divorce his life after he still wants to be a part of Klal Yisrael, and he desires to do all the mitzvahs and distance himself from the Averis, but it was his Yitzhahara, his evil inclination, which grabbed him. Since he is beaten to the point where Yitzhahara is weakened, the Omar Raitsani and he says the words I want to give the get, it is called giving the get of one's own volition. Says the Rambam, someone who does not want to sell an item, does not want to give away an item. You beat him and beat him until he finally says, I'll give it, I'll sell it. That doesn't work. For we know his true desire was not to sell such an item. But a yid who has a chance to do a mitzvah in front of him, and he says he doesn't want to do it. He doesn't want to give this get. If you beat him until he says, I'll give the get, we call that his rotten, his own desire. Why? What's the difference? Because we know that this Jew still wants to be a part of Klai Yisrael. And deep inside, he wants to fulfill the mitzvahs of Hashem. But his Yetzirah took over and holds him back. When you beat him to the point that he says, I want to give the get, he is once again connecting to his roots, his deepest of desires, which is to fulfill the Ratzon Abayrei Hashem's will. And therefore, the get is a valid get. I heard from one of my Rebbeim who said over from the Adaktana who wrote a Pirush on the Rambam, it seems that in his time, in the time of the Adaktana, there was a machloikis among the G'dayla Adar, if a Russia was dying, the Hevra Kaddisha, should they go try to encourage him to say Vidoy at the end of his life, to say the confession? Or since he lived such a horrible life, and if he was to continue living another 50 years, he would live the same way? What's the point? And the truth is, when we stand year after year on Yom Kippur, and we say, we confess our sins and klap al chet, when we know tomorrow there are certain things that we will go straight back to doing, certain things we may not be holding by, or we simply can't control ourselves, but yet we clap al chait on them year after year. Based on this Rambam, the Araktana Paskin, that even a Russia who has been involved in sin his entire life, if he is willing, you should go try to encourage him to say the Vidui. We don't know how it takes effect, and there are obviously many layers of chet that this Vidui has to get past. But if at the end he chooses to say the Vidoy knowing what he's saying, 
somewhere deep inside, beneath a lifetime full of Averis, he connects to a Shairish, to an inner desire that the Neshama of every Yid possesses to have lived his life as a better Jew. And who knows the effect that can have on this Rosh's Neshama. Every year on Yom Kippur when we clap Al Chet, on an Avera we may do again tomorrow. If we think to ourselves that at least we desire that we should be able to control ourselves, we want one day to reach a level where we won't do that Chet. If we tell HaKadosh Baruch Hu, somewhere deep inside of me there is a Ratzin not to do this Avera, and I want to connect to that desire, we do connect to that inner desire, and that too is tshuva. It's like a person who gets sick, Rahman son, and he can be in so much pain that he says, I'd rather not be alive. But we know that, of course, this person didn't all of a sudden lose his desire for life. Rather, that desire is hidden beneath layers and layers of pain. And if we remove that pain, his will to live would rise to the surface once again. Every Jew who shows a desire to be even a little bit closer to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, to raise his eyes up and live a little bit beyond himself, every year who walks into Shul on Tishabov to at least try to be Mesabal over the Churban Abayis, who shows a desire to be connected to Klal Yisrael, is connecting himself to our life source, and is connecting himself to what keeps us alive as a nation, our Tzipisali Yeshua. No matter how covered over our longing may be with the unfortunate pursuits of Eilam Azeh, the neshama of every yid is connected to this longing, this tzipisa, and as long as he does not give up hope from the geula, that desire for the geula continues to burn deep within each and every one of us. I want to share with you a beautiful story that was shared by Rabbi Chaim Berlin. Reb Chaim Berlin was the son of the famed Nitziv, Reb Naftali Tzvi Yehuda Berlin, and was born in the 1830s in the city of Volozhin. He held many different positions throughout his life, including chief rabbi in Moscow, Av Bezdin in Volozhin, eventually moving to Yerushalayim in the early 1900s, where he was elected chief rabbi of the Ashkenazi community. He was known to be a beautiful Balkare, and every week he would have people come to Davin with him just to hear his career. Shabbos, Cholomite, Pesach was a special time as multitudes of people would come to hear him lay in Shir Ashirim as he would do so with tremendous Hitzragshus, with great emotion, as he would bring alive the tremendous Ava that exists between Klal Yisrael and HaKadosh Baruch Hu as depicted in Shir Ashirim. His entire Kriya was extremely moving. But every year, as he would begin Parak Dalet and read the words, Hinach Yafa Rayasi, Behold, you are beautiful, my beloved. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are like the eyes of the dove. The words of Shleim Melech comparing the eyes of Klal Yisrael to the eyes of the Yain of the dove, he would begin to break down in tears. One year, Rabbi Ari Levine, the tzaddik of Yerushalayim, who was a Talmud of Rabbi Chaim Berlin, decided to ask him what it was about this Pasuk specifically that would bring him to tears year after year. Reb Chaim Berlin shared the following story with Reb Aryeh. He said, when he was the chief rabbi of Moscow, one day he gets a knock on his door, a seemingly non-Jewish man enters demanding to speak to the rabbi privately. Not knowing what it could be, 
he brings him into his office, and this fellow shares the secret news with the Rav that he just had a baby boy, and he wants Reb Chaim Berlin to perform the bris Reb Chaim wishes him a big mazel tov, says he'll be glad to perform the bris but asks him, why all the secrecy? What are you so nervous about? The fellow replies, Rabbi, I need you to know that I live in a city completely occupied by non-Jews. I myself live a life with not even a semblance of Judaism. And not only that, my business consists of buying and selling Christian religious articles. If it were to become known that I am Jewish, not only would I lose my entire livelihood, but I would have to fear for my life as well. I want my kid to have a bris milah, but Rabbi, it must be done with the utmost secrecy. Reb Chaim Berlin gathers more details about where he lives, how and when it's possible for him to sneak in undetected. They devise the plan, and come the eighth day, Reb Chaim and a Jewish doctor who is very well respected by the non-Jews as well, quietly show up at the man's house to perform the milah. Not only did his home not have a single sign signifying a Jewish presence, but on the contrary, his house was full of gechkas and all different types of religious, Christian religious articles. Reb Chaim Berlin performed the, performed the Mila with the doctor as the sandik, and as he was leaving, he asked this Jew to report back to him three days after the bris to tell him to let him know how the baby is doing. Three days later, he returns to Reb Chaim Berlin, Baruch Hashem, he can report the baby is fine. And before he leaves, Reb Chaim Berlin asks him the question that's been bothering him for three days already. He says, I came to your home, and I saw a home that is completely devoid of the slightest trace of Yiddishkeit. And that is the home you're planning on raising your son in. So why place yourself in such danger? Why all the Mesiris Nefesh to give your son a kosher bris mila? Upon hearing these words, the man begins to cry and says, Rabbi, I know that I have distanced myself from God and there are even times where my heart breaks over it. My son will grow up even more distant from Yiddishkeit than I am because I was raised in a Jewish home while he will be raised in my home without the slightest trace of Judaism in his life. However, I know that one day in the future, it is possible that he will yet become acquainted with Jewish life. And perhaps the spark that lies deep in the heart of every Jew will ignite, and he will desire to live his life as a religious Jew. If that day ever comes, I don't want to be the one to have placed the obstacles in his path from returning to his faith. So with great personal risk and mysterious nefesh, I gave him the bris milah, so that if that day ever does come, the door will be open for him to return to his Father in Heaven. Chazal asked on the Pasuk of Hinoch Yofa Rayasi, Hinoch Yofa Enayich Yoinim, Why the repetition? Why do we say, behold, you are beautiful twice? Chazal Darshan, Hinoch Yofa, behold, you are beautiful before the Chet, before you sin. And Hinoch Yafa, you are beautiful after the Chet. You are beautiful after you sin. Reb Chaim Berlin said to Reb Aryeh, for years this Chazal bothered me. What does it mean that there is a beauty to Klal Yisrael even after they sin? 
This man gave me my answer. The next words of the Pasik, Einayich Kayoinim, our eyes are like that of a dove. The Gemara explains that one of the unique characteristics of a dove is that she will never go so far away from her home that she won't know the way back. The, do- the eyes of the dove, when she turns her head back, will always be able to see her nest. Einayich Kayoinim. The eyes of Klal Yisrael are like the eyes of the dove. Even la'achar achet, after our sin, no matter how far away we've gone from our home, our roots, Yiddishkeit, we never go far enough away that we cannot find the way back. And that is the beauty, even after our chatan, after Klal Yisrael sins, we never throw it all away. Rather, we remain close enough to our roots that when the spark is ignited, we always know the way home. Said Reb Chaim Berlin, and that's why every year, as I read this Pasuk, I begin to cry. As I remember the Jew from Moscow who had gone so far away from his roots, and whose son was to be raised even further away than him. But even he understood that in the depths of every Jewish soul lies a burning desire, a spark, that may one day be ignited to come back home to his roots. Each and every one of us has that spark of Tzipisa, that spark to return home deep within us. But is it too difficult for us to reattach ourselves to it? Is it covered over with too many layers? Is it too far away for us to live with it? The Gemara in Brachas says over a story that one day Rabbi Yaisi was walking along the roads of Yerushalayim and he entered into one of the churvas, the ruins of Yerushalayim, to daven. As he's davening, Elio Anavi comes by. He waits until Rabbi Yaisi finishes his davening. They greet each other. A conversation ensues about whether it's proper to daven in a churva, daven in a rune. And then Elio Anavi asks Rabbi Yaisi, Bini, my son, what voice did you hear emanating from this rune? Rabbi Yaisi responds, I heard a voice come down from Shemayim that was wailing like a yoyna, a dove. And saying, woe to my children that due to their avarice I had to destroy my home, burn down my Kaidish, and exile them between all the nations of the world. The voice of HaKadosh Baruch Hu bemoaning the fact that he had to destroy his Mikdash and send his children into Golos. And what form does this voice take? Not the roar of a lion. Rather, says Rabbi Yaisi, it was Menahemes Kayoina, it was wailing like a dove. Why like a yaina? Says the maral, another unique characteristic of the dove is that the male yaina has only one female as a mate his entire life. And even if she is lost or dies, he does not go searching for another mate. Rather, he waits for her return or mourns over the loss of his mate. In this Gemara, HaKadosh Baruch Hu's cry is like the cry of the Yaina whose mate has been exiled and he longs for its return. 
HaKadosh Baruch Hu cries over the exile of His chosen people as He longs for their return. We are His Am HaNivchar, HaKadosh Baruch Hu's chosen mate. The Rabbi Shalom desires no one else. And just like the Yaina, He looks only for Klal Yisrael. He waits only for Klal Yisrael. And He desires only Klal Yisrael. And no matter how long we're in Golos, and no matter, no matter how buried our spark of Tzipiyah is, HaKadosh Baruch Hu will never abandon us and, continue to, and will continue to wait for us until we return home. I recently saw a story told over by Rabbi Yossel Friedrichsen Zatzal. During the Holocaust, at one point he was working in a labor camp in a small Polish town, Staroshovitz, doing harsh slave labor for the Nazi regime. Bechazde Hashem, his overseer at the time, a fellow by the name of Bruno Pape, was something of an, of an anomaly. While he possessed all the external trappings of a Nazi, inside he was somewhat human and even somewhat sympathetic to the Jews. Rabbi also managed to develop somewhat of a close relationship with Pape, and at times he would act as his interpreter for many of the others in the camp. <coughs> At that time in the camp, together with Rabbi Yossel, there was a chash of Yidr of Akiva Goldstaff. As Pesach came closer, this Rabbi Goldstaff approached Rabbi Yossel and asked him if there's any way he can get permission from Pape to bake matzahs. Pape gave permission, even helped Rabbi Yossel acquire a little bit of flour, and these Yidin managed to bake a few matzahs come Pesach. On Pesach morning, when Pape walked into the barracks and saw these Jews eating only the matzahs, but not the bread, he began to shout, You are idiots! Friedensen, Esprite! Eat bread! Your loving God has forsaken you, and you still believe in Him with such loyalty? Says Reb Yossel, No one dared to answer him. We were terrified. An uneasy silence fell over the entire room. Until... Rabbi Akiva Goldstaff stood up and in perfect German answered, Did you say that our God has forsaken us? Maybe for now, but nicht total und nicht auf ewig, but not totally and not forever. Three months later, as the Germans were preparing to send these laborers to Auschwitz, and a deep despair settled over all the people as they knew something very bad was happening, Pape himself attempted to comfort them as they were leaving the camp, as he reminded them of the words of Rabbi Akiva Goldstaff, nicht total und nicht auf ewig, not totally and not forever. Even in the camps where HaKadosh Baruch Hu was behester, so hidden from his children, the cry of the Yaina was still heard, not totally and not forever. HaKadosh Baruch Hu will never abandon us. As the Gemara continues, when Rabbi Yaisi finished telling Eliyahu Anavi the voice that he heard, Eliyahu Anavi responds, Chayecha v'chaye roishcha, lo isha zu bilvaday mereskach, ela b'chal yoyim v'yoyim shalosh pa'amim mereskach. Not just today in this churva does HaKadosh Baruch Hu cry for his children, but throughout this long gullus, tzara after tzara, every day, three times a day, 
there is a Baskal wailing like a Yaina as he waits for his Amanivchar, his chosen people, to return home. HaKadosh Baruch Hu is Menahemes Kayoina, he cries like a dove, and all he wants from us is our Enayich Kayoinim, for us to turn our heads back towards our home, and to show him we truly want to return. The Chafetz Chaim used to say over the story of how the Beis Halevi became the Rav of Brisk. When he was in the city of Slotsk, the city of Brisk sent a delegation asking him to become Rav. The Beit HaLevi continually refused them. But as they were leaving, a Pashari Yid from Brisk turned to the Beit HaLevi and said very simply, I don't understand, Rav. There are 25,000 Yidin awaiting your arrival in the city of Brisk. And with these simple words from a simple Yid, the Beit HaLevi can no longer refuse. Said the Chafetz Chaim, imagine if we were able to tell the Eibishta, there are one million Yidin waiting for you to send Mashiach, can the Eibishta possibly refuse? All HaKadosh Baruch Hu is waiting for is for us to gather together as a nation and say, we want. But how do we show HaKadosh Baruch Hu that we want it? How do we show HaKadosh Baruch Hu that we are Mitzapeli Yeshua, that we do await Mashiach's arrival? How can we be the dar to find the right words? The dar of the Chafetz Chaim couldn't find the words. The Vilna Gain's dar couldn't find the words. The Achrayim, the Rishayim, they didn't bring Mashiach. The Ga'inim, the Amirayim, even Darius of Tanaim had to suffer through this Golos. Yet we, who cannot even comprehend the levels of previous Darius, we're supposed to find the words. We're supposed to find those words to show HaKadosh Baruch Hu that we want to end this Golos. As we spoke before, our chiyos, our heartbeat, is tzipisali Yeshua. All we have to do is connect to that, to that heartbeat. If we raise our heads upward a little bit, and take in a grander vision, a vision of Yemais HaMashiach, show HaKadosh Baruch Hu that we're willing to live our lives a little bit higher than we were before, that as far away as we've gone, we at least remember the way home. That we're here in Shul on Tishabov, sitting on the floor, saying kinnis, at least showing the desire to be misabal properly, to try to understand what we're missing. If we stand by Mincha today, and when we say the words, Kilishu Ascha, Kivinu Kalayayim, because we await your Yeshua all day, we think that HaKadosh Baruch Hu, we don't even know what the Mikdash was. We are so far removed, we have no appreciation for what we're missing. But we're here on Tisha B'Av, saddened by that. We're here on Tisha B'Av, trying to connect to the inner spark that resides within each and every one of us. Trying to connect to the inner rutzen that we all have of Tzipisah Yeshua. If we can at least show that level of Tzipiah, that level of longing, then HaKadosh Baruch Hu can be tzaifeh. He can look back into the depths of our neshamas, into the deepest of our desires, and feel the heartbeat of the entire Am Yisrael awaiting the Geula. And with that, the cries of the Yaina can stop, as his Amanivchar finally returns home to the loving embrace of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, with the building of the third base HaMikdash from here of Yameinu Amen.
want to take a few moments before our last speaker to thank the Malcolm Siegel Network, which allowed well over a thousand people to watch and to listen to the live Tishabov program here at the New Springville Jewish Center in Staten Island. We again thank ZK for his tremendous work in making all of this possible. Again, we thank the speakers, Shlomo Yaakov Siegel, who spoke in memory of Rabbi Zev Siegel, Shlomo Schwartz in memory of Rabbi David Schwartz, or Yehuda Kovacs in memory of his grandfather, Eliakim Kovacs, Rabbi Eliel Sunshine, or Shiva of Shiva Gedoyla Archadosh in Seagate, Rabbi Yosef Siegel in memory of his grandfather, Rabbi Yosef Siegel, and Mayor Simcha Siegel, who just spoke memory of Ramosha Weisberg. In uh, six minutes, probably in the middle of Rabbi Learfield's speech, you could switch from the floor to a chair. And um, when the rabbi finishes, we will uh, wait to Dava Mincha at 2 o'clock. It is a great honor for our shul and for everyone across the world that is watching to be able to hear words now about Tisha B'Av from Rabbi Yaakov Learfield, the rabbi of the young Israel of Staten Island. Thank you, Rabbi Siegel, for allowing me this honor to come and speak in your show. Rabbi Siegel introduced me that it's a great honor, the rabbi of the young Israel, my great honor that Rabbi Siegel and I happen to be dear friends. I've been here for 20 years in the neighborhood, and he took me under his wing like a younger brother, and it is my covet and my honor to call Rabbi Siegel a true friend. If one were to open up their kinos, you would find that a good part of the kinos have to do with the Chorban based on Mikdash Arishon, of course based on Eicha, first temple being burnt, by Bavel. A good part of the keynotes have to do with the Chorban Bayes Hashani, which was by Rome, and all the suffering that entailed. And since Rome, we've been in Gullus for now 2,000 years. And over the course of 2,000 years, there were many keynotes of various calamities that befell the Jewish people on our wanderings from, for 2,000 years. From country to country, we are wanted, we are expected, we, they invite us to come. Before we set ourselves up, and within 50 years we speak the language, we are powerful, we are doctors and lawyers and accountants, we're involved in business, we become part of the country, uh, but sooner, sooner or later, no matter what happens, our lot of the Jew in Golas always is to be expelled, and that is what happens with the kinos that we are discussing today. This year, every year I pick a theme, I pick a topic, and this year's theme, this year's topic, I decided to speak about the golden era of Spanish Jewry, which is going to end with the expulsion from Spain. You have heard many times that many things happened on Tisha B'Av. First base of Migdish was destroyed on Tisha B'Av. The second base of Migdish was destroyed on Tisha B'Av. The city, the Rishulayim, after it was destroyed, was raised over and plowed like a field by Turnus Rufus. Betar, the great city, was overthrown. Millions of Jews were killed. All of these things happen on Tisha B'Av, and it goes back to the original Tisha B'Av, when the Meraglim did not show the love, the covet, the respect for the land of Eretz Yisrael, and therefore we've been forced to wander 
for 2,000 years until the third base of Mikdash will be built by Kaddish Baruch Hu Bimheir In 1492, the golden era of Spanish Jewry came to a screeching halt. I would like to just explain a little bit what was going on and why it happened and to get some perspective how it affects all of us to this day. The church, when Rome fell, the church took over. Rome accepted Christianity as its religion for the entire Roman Empire in the late three, in the, in the 393. Even though Rome was going to fall, something more powerful takes Rome's place, and that is going to be the church. The church was more powerful because until now, different countries had different rulers, different leaders, different dictators, but there were different countries. Now the church is going to act as a unifier and put together a good part of the world. Wherever the church now set its foot, part of their religion is to proselytize. Proselytize comes from the word of Rus, was a, was a Giaris. And when you proselytize, it means you convince someone to come over to your religion. Rumor has it that Yashka, at his last meal, which was a Seder in Yerushalayim, before he was taken by the Romans to be killed, he called out to his disciples, and he said to his disciples, I would like to tell you the gospel. Gospel means in Greek, the good news. What's the good news that Yashka was telling his disciples? He told them that I am going to be killed, Yashka, and my death will give forgiveness for the entire human race. On one condition, the only way that my death will act as a forgiveness and an atonement and an appeasement for all the people, for all other sins, is if you accept me. And therefore, Yashka tells his disciples to go out, to fan out across the world and proselytize and save everybody because the only way I can save them is if they believe in me. And therefore, part of their religion is to proselytize. We as Jews don't believe in that. If there is someone that's non-Jewish and they are kind and they are nice, we call them chasidei umos olam. When you go to Eretz Yisrael and you go to Yad Vashem, and see what happened with the Nazis, Yemach Shemam, and six million korbanos. Before you get into the exhibit, there are gardens, and each garden has a tree that was planted for one of the Hasidei Umos Olam. We don't proselytize. Our God, the Jewish God, the only God, understands that different people had different reasons why they were put here. The Jews, of course, are a beacon of light, and the rest of the world, they can live their lives as a non-Jew, and if they do it properly, they don't have to become Jews. We don't accept them as Jews. We turn them away. But everyone could find a place in this world that we believe God gave us. The church, Yashka, didn't believe in that. If you don't proselytize, it's not going to work. And therefore, many keynotes that we have are because of the church. In the year 711, 711, the Moors, an Arab country, an Arab nation, Islam, from North Africa, Africa came into Spain. Spain until then was a Christian country, and they made the lives of the Jews very difficult. The Visigoths, the Spanish people, did not let the Jews keep Shabbos, Brismila, Kashrus, Mikvah, anything. And when the Moors came in at 711, they invited the Jews to come, and Jews from Morocco, and Jews from Yemen, and the Jewish center that was in Buffalo until now, where all of the Geonim were, 
They all came because they were invited by the Moors, an Islamic nation from North Africa. They all came into the Iberian Peninsula. And the Moors threw out, they kicked out all of the Spaniards. And this went on now for 450 years. When you speak about the golden era of the Spanish Jewry, I find it a little bit wrong, because it wasn't Spanish, it wasn't the Spanish people, it was the Islam, the Moors, that allowed us to come in. Spain, which was a Christian country, hated the Jews and made our lives miserable. The Moors came in, gave us a right to practice our religion, and now all of the names of the Rishonim that you're going to hear, because the great centers of the Gaonim that were in Bavel now have moved to the Iberian Peninsula. The famous man, the Rif, the Rif, he is going to become the Rebbe of the Rimagash. The Rimagash is the Rebbe of Maimon, which is the father of the Rambam. So the Rambam is coming from the Rif. This is all because of the Iberian Peninsula. You speak about the Ramban. The Ramban taught the Rajba. The Rajba was close with the Rush, the Ran, the Rivash. All of this was going on in the Iberian Peninsula because of the benevolence of the Moors, Islam. You speak about um, Rabbi Yehuda Halevi, the one that wrote the Kuzari. All of these, all of these were all found in Spain. A good part of our Rishonim were living and thriving the biggest yeshivas of the time were now going on in Spain. In Europe, as the Jews were doing so wonderful in the Iberian Peninsula, you had in Europe the other Rishonim, Rashi and the Balitosis. They were being forced because of the church, all of the Crusades. The golden era of Spain is going to come to a screeching halt in the end of the 1200s because the Spanish people, Spain, is now going on something called the Reconquista, which means the Reconquest. And they wanted to take their land back from the, from the Moors. Moors, this, this nation from North Africa, began to fight internally and therefore, the Spanish kings of Aragon, Castile, Granada, kicked the Moors out. By the end of the 1200s, Spain already conquered a good part of its territory, and they began to consolidate themselves, and along came the church, and the church told them, your job in the Iberian Peninsula is to get rid of the Jews. In the year 1469, two of the states in the Iberian Peninsula one of them was Castile, and one of them was Aragon. Aragon had a king by the name of Ferdinand, a queen called Isabella. They had a wedding, a royal wedding. The wedding was simply not just because someone made a shidduch. It was because they wanted to consolidate the Iberian Peninsula. They consolidated it. The reconquest was over. The Moors were expelled. And after they got married, and the entire Iberian Peninsula, the Spanish Peninsula, was now under the king and queen, Ferdinand and Isabella. So they decided and they called upon someone none other than Don Yitzchak Abarvinel. The Abarvinel was the financial advisor. He was the chief of state. He was the chief of staff. When they went through the reconquest, the Spanish leaders, they all relied upon one person, Rav Yitzchak Abarvinel, who put it all together. When the conquest was finished, and Ferdinand and Isabella got married, they decided it had to be because HaKadosh Baruch Hu, their God, wanted something from them. And they called the Abarvanel and asked him, what do you think we should do in honor of our God, who gave us this gift, 
that we threw out the Arabs, we threw out the Moors, and the entire peninsula is now under our protection. Isabella, Queen Isabella, who hated the Jews, told her husband, God wants us to get rid of the Jews. Along comes something called the Spanish Inquisition. The church always had an inquisition. The church began its inquisition because of heresy amongst its own ranks, but inevitably it's going to turn to the Jews. The inquisition, which was now put in place by the king and queen of Spain, aimed their target on the Jew. Anyone that was accused of any crime was brought un un under the Inquisition. You were guilty till proven innocent. In those days, there were Jews that were called Anusim. Anusim is a very nice word. It means you were forced. You were compelled. There were many Jews that were baptized, but they weren't baptized because they believed in a different religion, completely Jewish. But they couldn't live with the Inquisition. And therefore, outwardly, they pretended to be Christians, but inwardly, they were 100% Yerushamayim Erlechayidim. There were those that were called new Christians. The new Christians accepted a little bit more of the Christian belief, not because they wanted to, they had to. But even though they had to, inside they believed in God and they were waiting for the Mashiach to come, the king and queen, to allow them some rights to act as Jews. And then there were the conversos. In 1391, the Dominican monks, the Franciscan monks, began a terrible, virulent, anti-Semitic crusade against the Jews. The Pope pushed them. In fact, he set up the Dominican order and the Franciscan order simply to clean out the church, get rid of these Jews. The pogroms began in Seville in Spain, 1391. 50,000 Jews were killed, all because the Franciscan monks and the Dominican monks started saying these terrible things about the Jews, and the people couldn't wait. Many of the people owed money to the Jews. Many of the people never liked them and never trusted them anyway. Within the year, the entire peninsula, the Inquisition took place. Hundreds of thousands of Jews were killed, and hundreds of thousands were forced to convert. The Inquisition forced something which we call now the era of the Anusim. The jails were filled with tens of thousands of these new Christians. Christians never trusted them. And therefore, because of this, Isabella, Queen, and King Ferdinand hired an Inquisition Inquisitor General by the name of Thomas Torquemada. And with the most zeal in the world, he took his religion and again, Yashka, before he was taken to be killed by the Romans, his words were, spread the gospel, the good news. I will save the world on one condition. You go out and you convert all those Jews. If you ask an evangelist what his goal in life is, he says to love people. So they ask him, you'll ask an evangelist, so why are you so difficult with the Jews? And they will tell you honestly, it's all the shame Shemayim. The only way I can save a Jew the only way I can help him and bring him to Gan Eden, the only way he will not rot in utter damnation for eternity is if I bring him over to the true light. And Torquemada, the Inquisi Inquisitor General, took this to the nth degree. When you go to the museums in England, in France, all over the world, and they show you the, the machines, they show you 
what they used to torture the Jews, it's simply mind-boggling. If they caught a Jew simply because a Jewish lady lit a candle on Friday night in her house and someone said they saw a candle in the house, they were guilty. If they saw her kill a fowl, a chicken, with a special knife, shechita, they put them in jail. If they saw them eat a piece of flat bread, which we call matzah, Pesach time, they were put in jail. If they saw you buy potatoes or karpas, a vegetable in the, in the, in the, in the shuk, Pesach time, you were put in jail. You could not confess. Confession, unless it was under torture and agony, was not accepted. Nowadays, the CIA has a whole discussion. If you torture someone, they confess, is it a real confession? Or their torture and their pain pushed it. The church, Torquemada, believed Fakert, the opposite. The only way you can get a true confession is with the most torturous ways. My mother, my mother likes to cook. She has a big pot, 20 quarts. 20 quart pot, she cooks, she makes a lot of food. They had pots that held 50, 100 gallons. They would fill it with oil. They would boil it. They would drop a person in slowly by the toes and then the feet, then the ankles and then up to the knee, literally boiling people in oil to death. They put you near a fire until your feet began to burn. When your feet burned, they put you up to your knees and they put you up to your hips. What they did to get a confession because they did it with shame shamayim. They needed you to admit the heresy of, you, of what you did, the mitzvahs that you followed, and that Yashka was the real God. The entire Iberian Peninsula was quaking in its boots. Instead of speaking about the Inquisition largely with broad strokes, I want to focus on a smaller picture to give us a controlled environment to get a more of a feeling what was going on. I'd like to start with a story. There's a man in Israel, his name was Rabbi Yosef Wallace. Rabbi Yosef Wallace began a movement called Arachim. Arachim, Erech means a value. They go around Israel, and in Israel, unfortunately, there are many, many Jews that never went to a proper school. They don't know Kriyashma. They have no idea of our history. They have no idea of our Tanakh. They have barely know about Moshe Rabbeinu, Aaron, Miriam, Mitzrayim. And Arachim goes around and they try to convince them of the authenticity of our Torah. So one day, one Shabbos, Rabbi Yosef Wallace was with his parents at a Shabbos meal, and he asked his father and his mother, can you please tell me how you met? I never heard, you never gave me the story. How did you meet? I know you went through the Holocaust, but how did you meet? So his father, Rabbi Yehuda Aryeh, says as follows, I was in Dachau for a few months, and one day a train came in, and when the train came in, they have the selection. You move to one side to live, the other side you're going to be killed. And a Jew got off, an elderly Jew, and he saw that he was being sent with the other elderly Jews and small children to one side, and the younger, stronger ones on the other side. And he realized if he's being sent to this direction, it's because he's going to be killed. He had a bag in his hand, and he threw it to a man by the name of Yehuda Aryeh Wallace. The Behuda Aryeh, who hasn't eaten, he's in the camps, he's in Dachau, was so happy. He figured there's a little bit of food, perhaps a small piece of bread, anything to eat. So he puts it under his shirt, he takes it to the bunk, to the barracks, and he opens it up, and lo and behold, right off the train, this Jew, all he was carrying was a pair of tefillin. tefillin a pair of tefillin was, tefillin was in the bag. He waits till the next morning to put the tefillin on, he can't sleep at night, he's so excited, it's been months 
since he even touched, let alone put on a pair of tefillin. And he wakes up early at the crack of dawn. He wasn't sleeping anyway. And he takes them out of the bag. He unwraps them and he gives them a kiss. And as he's holding them, a Nazi guard walks in. The Nazis knew exactly what he was holding. He drags them out with the tefillin. He calls an appell, which means the assembly, they line them up. And he puts a noose around his neck. And he is going to beat this Jew. He was going to do something so terrible, he even called the ladies in the next camp to stand by the fence to watch what he was going to do. He marches Rabbi Yosef Wallace up to the gallows with the noose around his neck. And he says, you dog, you filthy Jew, before I hang you, before I kill you, is there anything you want to ask for? It's an amazing thing we always speak about. You give a condemned man his last wish. So Rabbi Yosef Wallace says to the Nazi guard, I just got these tefillin yesterday. I didn't have time to put them on yet because you walked in as soon as I took them out of their zekel. If you ask me if I want one last thing before I die, I want to put the tefillin on. And he begins to put them on. When we finish putting on the yad, the rosh, we wrap them around our fingers. And we say the words of Eiras Tich three times, which means we wrap them around our finger like a ring. And we say to Kodesh Baruch Hu, we are betrothed to you. We are betrothed to you with loving and with kindness and with honesty. And he puts the tefillin on and he holds up the hand with the tefillin and it's on his head. And he sees all the Jews staring at him. He's standing on a gallows with the noose around his neck. And he says to the Jews, what I said is true. We are betrothed to God. It doesn't make a difference what these animals are doing to us. We are married to God forever. And therefore, never forget who you are. The Nazi was so angry. He was so incensed. He said, I'm not going to kill you by hanging. It's too nice. It's too easy. And he drags them down by the noose to the ground. And he keeps the tefillin on them. And he gives them two large stones, one for the left arm and one for the right arm. And he makes them kneel on his knees. And he calls over one of the kapos. And he says to the kapos, he's wearing tefillin on the head. Take my plastic, my rubber truncheon and give him 25 lashes on the head where the tefillin is laying. He holds the stones for Yosef Wallace. The kapo takes the truncheon and he bends down to Rabbi Yosef Wallace and he says to him, Rabid, I want to tell you something that's truthful. No one ever survived 25 blows to the head. Do yourself a favor. After one blow, drop the stones and the Nazi will shoot you. Do not hold on to the stones because as long as you hold the stones, I am going to beat you. And I can't hold back, he's watching. Drop the stones and he'll shoot you. You will not survive the beating. And he said, never. I'm wearing my tefillin. Everyone sees, never. He beat him 25 times with his rubber truncheon. And he falls to the ground. The Nazi was convinced he's dead. No one ever survived. Someone from the barracks walked over a few minutes later. They saw that his blouse, his shirt was moving. He's breathing. They dragged him under the barracks. The Nazis never looked for him again because they were convinced, they were positive, no one survived, he must be dead. They nursed him back to health. It took two and a half months. Two and a half months later, Dachau is 
liberated. Thank you, my dear friend, liberated. The prisoners are all mulling around, and a young woman, she's 17 years old, she must have weighed 60 pounds, walks over to Rabbi Yosef Wallace, and she says to him, will you marry me? He says, marry you? I don't even know who you are, what's your name? She says, it doesn't make a difference. They killed my father and my mother. They killed my Zaydi and my Bubby. They killed my brothers and my sisters. I have nothing. I was there when I saw them beat you. I heard your speech that we are married and betrothed to God. All I want to do is to set up a Yiddish family like my parents and my grandparents. Will you marry me? They were taken to a DP camp, Feldafing, who the Gadol on, on the spot was the Kloisenberger Rebbe. And they asked the Kloisenberger Rebbe to marry them. He sat down, he took out a piece of paper, he took a pen, and by memory, he asked them their names, and he wrote down Iksuva. He called a minion of Jews over. He found an old parachute that he can use as a chuppah, and he married the Wallaces together. And therefore, Rabbi Yosef Wallace, on the Friday night at the Shabbos table, when his son, uh, Rabbi Yosef Wallace, asked his father, you the Wallace, how you, got, how, you, how you met mommy? He said, that's how we met. Mommy proposed to me, and we've been living happily ever after since then. The son, Rabbi Yosef, said to his father, do you have the ksuva? He says, do I have the ksuva? There is nothing more valuable to me than the ksuva that the Kloisenberger wrote for us in that DP camp, and he shows them the ksuva. The son never heard the story before. The father told him how proud he was that he has Arachim, and he should continue reaching out to reach all those Jews that do not yet know about Yiddishkeit. And then Rabbi Yosef said to his father, Yehuda Aryeh, he said, can you do me a favor? How'd you get the strength? How'd you hold those stones? How do you have the chutzpah to tell the Nazi in his face that you want to wear tefillin? Where did you get that omits, that strength from? And he says, you never heard about our grandfather, our great-grandfather? He says, let me tell you a story about our great-grandfather, Harav Rafal Wallace. In 1391, in Spain, the Inquisition began. By 1492, all the Jews were kicked out, they were expelled. All the Orthodox Jews were put onto a boat. It fell out on Tisha B'Av. It was August 2nd. Columbus was supposed to leave that day, but he couldn't get out of the port because there were 300,000 Jews, according to the Barvenel, cramming on every boat possible because they had to leave the peninsula on Tisha B'Av of 1492. A small island off of Spain. It's written M-A-L-L-O-R-C-A, pronounced Mallorca. Mallorca was part of Spain, a small little island. It had 3,000 Jews in 1391. Of the 3,000 Jews, 350 were killed in the pogroms that began in Seville in 1391. The era of the Anusim in Mallorca began. In 1645, the pogroms began again by the Dominican and the Franciscan monks and another 450 Jews were killed. In the year 1688, 1688, 
the Rav of this group of Anusim, they were not called the Moranos. In Spain, they were called Moranos. Morano means pigs, it means swines, it means filth. The old Christians never trusted the new Christians, the Jews that converted, and they had a name for them. They called them the Moranos. In Mallorca, has a different dialect, and they call them the Shuetas. C-H-E-A-T-H, the Shuetas. Google it. In 1688, the Rav of the Shuetas, his name was Robert Fraul Wallace. They didn't daven on Yom Kippur, because on Yud Tishrei Yom Kippur, the Inquisition was always looking for any gathering of these new Christians, these Shuetas. They waited till Yud Aleph the next day, or Yud Bez two days later. And somehow through the grapevine, they all passed the word they're going to meet in some field under some tree. They didn't speak Hebrew. They didn't speak Lashon HaKodesh. They'd been in hiding already for close to 200, 300 years. But Rabbi Rafael Wallace, who was a businessman who traveled a little bit, had in his possession one machzer. And he knew a little bit of Lashon HaKodesh. And under the tree in some field he gathered with these Anusim, or in Mallorca they were called the Shuetas, and he began davening with them. They cried. They didn't know what to do with themselves. They knew that when it came to Yiddishkeit, they knew so little. Their favorite yantiv was Pesach. Why was Pesach their favorite yantiv? Because in Pesach, when we begin with Halach Ma'anya, we finish with the words Hashasa Avde, we're now enslaved, but next year, B'nai Charim, we're going to be peace. Hashasa Hacha, now we are here in Spain, now we are in Mallorca, it's miserable. L'shana Habab, next year, Ba'ardi Yisrael, we're going to be in Yerushalayim. Pesach was their favorite yantif. They didn't keep the Sadarim like we do on first and second night. They waited till a few days later. How they made their matzah, how they had their karpas, how they did everything underground is simply the Mishnirus Nefesh's mind-boggling. Yom Kippur they all kept, but they didn't fast on the 10th, they fasted a day or two later. Their favorite heroine, their person that they looked up to as the epitome of what a Jew was supposed to be, was Esther Hamalka. Why was Esther Hamalka their favorite Jewish person of all time? Because they held all of the Moranos in Spain and all of the Suetos in Mallorca. They believed that she was the original crypto-hidden Jew. She was Jewish, 100%, and kept everything, but it was hidden, and therefore she was the heroine. They were caught on Yom Kippur, davening in the field, and they were brought to jail. They kept them in the dungeons, and they tortured them for three years. After three years, they brought them out of jail. 30 Jews, three years in jail. The Inquisition gave them a choice. They called it fire or water. What does fire and water mean? Fire means if you don't accept, if you don't repent, if you don't admit to your heresy, if you don't admit to the ways that you keep Judaism inside in secret, we'll burn you. It's called the ato da fe. Ato da fe means an act of faith. Part of the Christian belief, of course, is the proselytize. They believe if you accepted and you were baptized at one point in your life, and now you moved off, you fell off the derech, so they have to bring you back. And by torturing and burning you, the shame shemaim, they'll find the place for you because now you have repented. 
30 Jews taken out of the dungeon. And as they take them out, they built in Gamilla Square, in the middle of this island of Mallorca, in their largest city. They built a beautiful, unbelievable square. And on the square, of course, they had in the middle a dais. And on the dais, the Inquisition general sat. And the Pope is there, and all the cardinals are there. And they sat in the most exquisite, beautiful burgundy chairs. And as they're bringing these Jews out, they dress them in a mocking way. They put on funny-looking clothing with pictures of snakes and demons. They put a metal mask on their face so they wouldn't be able to say anything wrong. And as they lead them out and they're dragging them, and you can tell for three years being in a dungeon what they look like, so the priests, the Inquisition started screaming and yelling, repent, repent. If they repented, they would still be killed. But by hanging, mercifully, they would kill them. If you didn't repent, and you held fast that Yiddishkeit is the proper religion, then they can't save you unless they burn your body and burn your soul so you can be reborn. 30 Jews let out. 27 said, we repent. And they were hung. There were three Jews that said they don't repent. They will never, ever admit and say that their religion, Yiddish guide, is wrong. Three Jews. One of them, 45 years old, was a woman. Her name was Catalina Tarangi. Why was she caught? Because she said to her son on a Friday afternoon before Shabbos, can you bring me a candle? The son didn't know any better. He went to the maid of the house and said, mommy wants a candle. As soon as the son told the maid, the servant, that mommy wants a candle on Friday afternoon, why think it might have been for light? Obviously it was for Shabbos. And she was arrested because she lit Shabbos candles. Once she was arrested, her brother, his name was Rafael Baruch Benito, 25 years old, was also arrested. And of course, the Rav, their rabbi, Harav Rafael Wallace, was one of the three arrested with these other two. <clears throat> they brought them to the stage. They began building the fire, the pyre that is going to burn them. They began tying their hands behind the stake to burn them. And, Catal and this, the woman, Catalina, 45 years old, saw her younger brother, Baruch, beginning to get nervous and waver. And on the top of her lungs, she yelled and she screamed, Do not give in. Do not repent. Imagine the scene. They built bleachers nine levels high. There were 30,000 Mallorcan people to watch the burning. 30,000. You have three Jews in the middle about to be burnt. And the youngest one, 25 years old, Baruch Benito, is about, he's getting nervous. He's about to be burnt. And his sister yells at the top of her lungs, do not repent. And you have 30,000 people yelling and screaming, repent, repent. And she screams and she yells, don't do it. They can burn your body. They can't touch your soul. They can burn your body. They can't touch your soul. Please be strong. Rabbi Wallace, Rafael Wallace, when he heard these words, and of course, I assume he was also nervous, he said to himself, she's right. This lady, this simple, pushed lady, who probably never held a safer in her life, all she did was light Shabbos candles. Maybe, perhaps, she had some type of a matzah on Pesach. She knew nothing of Yiddishkeit, but she was so strong, 
So Rafal Wallace was extremely strong, and the three of them were burnt al-Kiddush Hashem. There's a famous Gemara. The Gemara in Baruch says that when the Romans were, of course, in Eretz Yisrael, and this is, is a famous kina we say today of the Arze Halavan on the Asari Haruge Malchus. So the Gemara, the Gemara tells us that Rabbi Akiva got into an argument. Should he teach Torah Barabim or not? What was Rabbi Akiva Shail? Of course we're supposed to learn. There's only three mitzvahs, or three averos that a yid can never transgress, the cardinal three. There's Shri Chazdamin, we can never kill, even if your life is at risk. You can never have a Vodazar, even if your life is at risk. Or Gili Arayas. These three are the cardinal sins that a Jew, no matter what the position he is in, he can never transgress. Do you have to teach Torah? Are you allowed to teach Torah? Or are you supposed to somehow pretend and keep on to your life? The Pasuk says you've got to always watch your life. So Rabbi Kiva wasn't in, argu- wasn't in argument. And he gave the famous mushal, a yid. It's like a fish. A fish out of water, of course, is going to die. A Jew without Torah cannot survive. And the Gemara says it wasn't long until they caught Rabbi Akiva. They put him in jail. And when they took him out to die, they took, a, they took barbed wire. And they were gouging out his flesh. I get a little boo-boo on my finger. I get sometimes a paper cut, and I am in such pain. I get a mosquito bite, I'm in pain. They were gouging out Rebbe Akiva's flesh. Gemara tells us in Brachas, it was time to say Kriyashma. And he was saying it with such mysterious nefesh, as they were gouging out his skin. And the Talmudim looked at Rebbe Akiva, and they said to Rebbe Akiva, Ad Khan? What did they ask? What was their question, Ad Khan? Simply, I assume it means, you're showing our dear Rebbe such hislavis, such tveikas to a Kaddish Baruch Hu. It doesn't look like you're in any pain because you're focusing so much on Kriyashma. Ad Khan, how can you do it? How is it possible? To which Rebbe Akiva said to him, every day in Kriyashma we say, v'yahavta, you have to love a Kaddish Baruch Hu. I always gave Modech, I gave it my all. I always gave Modech, I gave I gave, but it says I gave. means Kiddush Hashem, and the Gemara Paskins he learns I entire my entire life I prepared myself for this moment, and now you expect me not to embrace it. And the Gemara says. As he was saying, Kriyashma Yatzlo Nishmaso Be'echad, Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Echad. He passed away in the word Echad. Yatzlo Baskol, a heavenly voice comes out and says, Rabbi Akiva, Mizuman, Lachaye Olam Haba. If you look at the Gemara in the Ein Yaakov, there's a parish there called the Eitz Yosef. Or, if you want, you can find this in Chela Gimel of the Maram Baruch one of our Rishonim, or you can find it in the, in the Sefer called the Arve Nachal, or if you want, you can find this all quoted in the Sefer called Eish Kodesh by the Piyetzetzner Rebbe, who was in the Varsha Ghetto, the Pklonius Kalman Shapiro, the famous Piyetzetzner Rebbe. In every Erev Yantiv, in every Erev Shabbos, when he was in the Warsaw Ghetto, he gave a shmuz. And he quotes the Arve Nachal, who quotes the Eighth Joseph, who quotes the Maram Baruch, and they say the Pshat in the Gemara is as follows. I don't understand it. 
So please, if you are listening, don't call me up. Call up Rabbi Siegel, my dear friend. The Piyetzetzner quotes the Arvi Nachal, who quotes the Maran Baruch, and he says the Pshah and the Gemara is as follows. When a Yid is Moser Nefesh al-Kiddush Hashem, and he is so davuk in HaKadosh Baruch Hu, the Neshama takes over, and the goof becomes battle. It says in Arve Nachal, Ein lo shum tsar, o ke'ev. There's no pain, there's no suffering. Ela ta'anug amiti. Pure ecstasy. Because your neshama is comple- completely clinging. It is davuk, it is connected to God. When the Talmidim saw Rebbe Akiva, and he was being tortured, and the pain in their mind must have been so agonizing, they said, Ad Khan, how are you doing it? And he answered them according to this pshat, what do you mean, how am I doing it? I said, and we say in Shema every day, if they take your life, I spend my whole life preparing. I don't feel any pain. My neshama is soaring so high. I wonder, somebody like Moshe Rabbeinu, who we know was an Isha Elohim, and his body was completely subservient to his neshama, or many of our Gedolim. I'm wondering, is it just when a Yid is Moshe Nefesh al-Kiddush Hashem? Or perhaps there are many Yidim, great, our leaders, our Rosh Yeshivas, our Rebbeim, our Rishonim, all of, the Gedol, all of our Gedolim. Perhaps throughout their whole life, their body means nothing to them because their neshama is clinging. And therefore the Gemara says that Rabbi Akiva said to the Talmidim, you look at me, you don't understand, but I am telling you, there's no pain at all. I don't know what happened in Mallorca when they burned these three Anusim, Catalina, her brother Rafal, and her Rafal Wallace, but they burnt them at the stake as auto da fe, an act of faith, while they were saying Kriyashma. In Kina Chavbez, when it speaks about how many Jews gave their life, al Mesiris Nefesh, there is one line there that I want to share with you. It says in Kina Chavbez, Ve'ish es achiv chizko ba'azara. It speaks about how all of the nations of the world tortured and killed us. All the pogroms. The words mean ve'ish es achiv, while we were being tortured, there was always one, two, five, ten, fifty Jews that they saw their brethren about to fall because of the torture. And it says, chizku ba'azara. They called out to them, don't repent. What you're doing is l'shem shamayim. It is a supreme mitzvah. I do not know if they knew this arve nachal. I do not know if they heard the shmuz from the piyatzetzner. But it says over here, isha sachiv, chizko ba'azara. They called out one to another. And look at the history whenever the pogroms happened. When they began taking shuls packed with people and they burned it to the grounds and we all said out loud in unison, Shema Yisrael, we gave each other such chizuk. It's this kina chav beis which shows this chizuk. The Kloisenberger Rebbe married them in the DP camp and their favorite possession happens to be that ksuva that was written. And therefore, Rabbi Yehuda Aryeh Wallace when his son, Rabbi Yosef, who founded Arachim, asked his father how you and Ma met. And he said how they met in Dachau. And how do you have the strength? And he says the story about the Anusim, the Shuaitas, which means pig filthy, because that's what they called us in this island of Mallorca. He says, I got my strength 
from my Zaidi, and my Zaidi got it from that simple Pasha de Yid, that Catalina Tornagi, who said and yelled to her brother, don't repent, don't give in, they can burn your body, they can't burn your soul. The Kloisenberger Rebbe came to Auschwitz. On a Friday morning, it was 10 a.m. When they sent the Jews on the cattle cars to the concentration camps, whatever amount of cattle were supposed to be in the car, they doubled it, they tripled it. They put 10 times more of Jews, men, women, children, old, young, and they stuffed us in. It didn't take a day or two. If the tracks were needed to send munitions or send soldiers, they kept the, the, the cattle car on the side of the road. It can take three days, five days, to get to the concentration camp where they were sending you. When you got there, hungry, starving, filthy, you can't believe what they were going through. They got to Auschwitz on a Friday morning, and the Nazis came in with their gun butts and they beat them off the train. They put the Jews in the barracks. Some were, of course, sent to be gassed immediately. The Klausenberger Rebbe, Rebbe Kusiel Yehuda, Halberstam was young. He was sent to the barracks. And it was a Friday. He got there at 10 o'clock. Early afternoon, the Nazis came with a big drum with what they was some type of a watery soup gruel. And they said the word fleisch, which means meat. And the Jews ran out from the barracks. They were starving. They haven't, they haven't eaten in a few days. The Kloisenberger Rebbe stayed in the barracks. And he said to himself, I never ate treif in my life. I'm not about to start eating treif. And he stayed in the barracks. He was starving. The other Jews went out. Whatever food, you might not call it food, they ate something. And they came back into the barracks. It was now Shabbos night. Whatever amount of sleep they can have. And in the morning, when they awoke early, the guards again put something outside, this watery mush, and they said again the word Fleisch. And the Kloisenberger Rebbe looks up at Shabbos and he starts singing Shabbos, Shabbos Kodesh, a Halakha Shabbos Kodesh. And he says to the Rebbeinu Shalom, I am not going to eat treif and I'm not going to eat treif on Shabbos. The Jews begin to mull around. They were not yet given work opportunity, a work schedule. They just got there. He's alone in the barracks and he's crying. He's starving, and it's Shabbos. He's alone in the barracks and someone knocks on the door. He doesn't say a word. The knocking comes again and someone from the outside yells inside, is the Kleisenberger Rebbe inside? And he's quiet. The Nazis killed every Rav and every Rebbe first because they were the natural leaders. They walked into a town, they found out who the Rav or the Rebbe was and they killed them on the spot. Kleisenberg Rebbe didn't tell anybody who he was. He couldn't figure out why someone was outside and calling for the Kleisenberg Rebbe. He didn't answer. And this Yid outside then says to the Kleisenberg Rebbe, he then says to him, uh, I, am a, I am a Talmud. I was a Chassid of the Kishinevah Rebbe, which was your uncle. When the Kleisenberg Rebbe heard the words of his uncle, the Kishinevah Rebbe, he obviously saw that this Yid outside was real. He wasn't the Kapo. It wasn't someone trying to trick him. It wasn't someone looking to get him in trouble. So he invited this Yid in. The Yid comes in, and they schmooze a little bit about his uncle, his, the Kishinevah Rebbe. And the Yid then pulls out of his smock, out of his clothing, a piece of bread. And you can listen to this. It's a YouTube, where the Rebbe is speaking, of course, in Yiddish. 
and with a large amount of marmalade, which I'm assuming, because my Yiddish isn't that great, it's marmalade, which means jelly. He's holding the marmalade, the jelly, and the piece of bread. The Yid walks out, and the Kloisenberger Rebbe puts it down on, his, on the barrack. He finds a little bit of water. He washes his hands from the Tilas Yadayim, and he makes Kiddush over the piece of bread. He says, I never had bread and marmalade that tasted like Gan Eden, like this did. He made Kiddush, and he looks up and he says to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, I was wondering if I would find the Eberster in Auschwitz. My first shop is here. I had no food. I was starving. I couldn't make Kiddush. And now, Baruch Hashem, I have found the Eberster, even in Auschwitz. The Kleisenberger Rebbe then says, I was in Auschwitz for another 10 months. And not once did I eat treif, and not once was I Machal Shabbos. And he is the one that married, in Feldafing, the DP camp, Rav Yehuda Aryeh Wallace and his wife. We always lane Parshas Mase during the three weeks. The reason why we lane Mase during the three weeks is because when we left Mitzrayim, we had 42 stops until we reached Eretz Yisrael. It is amazing. 42 stops, always laned in the three weeks. The Yidim have been in Gullus for 2,000 years. Whenever we were in Gullus, whenever, the first few years is always difficult. We don't speak the language, we are foreigners. Give us a little bit of time. We learn the language, we learn the people, we, la we learn the lay of the land. And if people just leave us alone and watch what we can do, we become prominent. We have yeshivas. We teach Torah. We raise our children well. We are a beacon of light. But as soon as we get comfortable, as the Meshachachma says, HaKadosh Baruch Hu kicks us out again. I spoke today about, a little bit, about the Inquisition, about the Gerush from Svarad. What's fascinating, when the Geonim, their era, ended in Bavel, they ended up in Spain. From Spain, in 1492, when we were kicked out, a man by the name of Christopher Columbus set sail the next day. According to many, many historians, Christopher Columbus was one of the Moranos, one of the Anusim. In his diary, in all of his writings, almost every page or every other page, he has a reference either to some part of the Chumash or some part of the Nevi'im. Not just that, fact, this is a fact. His astrologer, his astronomer, his physician, many people on his boat were these conversos, these new Christians, these Anusim. So the moment that Spain is finishing, we are now on our way to a new world. The Inquisition followed us to the new world. The Inquisition followed us, we went to Brazil, we went to Mexico, which was then called New Spain, and from New Spain we were kicked out again and we went to New Mexico. Right now, today, there are many Jews that walk around New Mexico in America, in the United States, and they find little communities where the mother of the house doesn't know why, but she lights a candle in a flower pot, a big flower pot. She lights a candle in a closet. She doesn't know why, but whenever she bakes bread, she takes a small piece off and she burns it. 
They don't know why they do these things, but from New Mexico they came from Mexico, from Mexico they came from Brazil, from Brazil they came from Spain, or from Portugal. There are so many Anusim in the world, and so many don't know why they do things, but there are many people out there. And the lesson of the three weeks, all of these stops, is that before Kaddish Baruch Hu kicks us out of one country, the next country is ready. When we left Spain, we didn't know where to go. We will follow Columbus. Many came to America, and many came to Brazil. And many Jews in Brazil, when the Inquisition followed us, we went to North Brazil. There's a city there that is written R-E-C-I-F-F-E. If I'm not, if I am correct, it's pronounced Hesefe. Hesefe, they went there because one of their havens for Jews was the Netherlands. And the Dutch, which were very powerful at this point, settled, besides Dutch Guiana, they also settled northern Brazil, and all the Jews that were being persecuted in the New World because of the Inquisition went to northern Brazil, which was now under the Dutch, under the Netherlands, and they found beautiful refuge. They built shuls, all the shuls, Netzach Yisrael, which means we are eternal. Nitcha Yisrael, we are the people that have been kicked to every corner of the world. And when the Jewish people, when, when Hesafe was fell to, the, to Brazil, which means the, the Spanish, and the Dutch were now going to be evicted, they told the Spanish, we will not let you take the Jews before we surrender. Every Jew that lives in our city has passage. Where did they go, those Jews? They went to New Amsterdam, which all of us call New York. And they built a shul called She'eris Yisrael, which means the remnant of the Jews. Interesting note. There were, we all heard the pirates, the famous pir pirates. There were many pirates that besides on their belt they had the skull and crossbones, which is their flag. Many pirates had a second flag also. The second flag was a Magain David. You have no idea how many Jews were pirates. And all they cared about were finding the Portuguese and the Spanish galleons to steal their money and sink their boats. You know, the pirates had their own little places where they lived because they were always outlaws. If you find these, a pirate cemetery, on many of the Matsevos you will find a Magain David. Read the Kinas. We've been in Gullis now for 2,000 years. And the Kaddish Baruch Hu sends us from city, from country to country. And we always have to start again. I am convinced and I am positive that every single stop that we have in this long and bitter Gullis is like the 42 stops from Mitzrayim, Har Sinai to Eretz Yisrael and Halavai. We are on the way to the Mashiach. When the Holocaust finished, Eretz Yisrael opened, America blossomed, let's hope and pray that this will be our last Tisha B'Av together. I hope and pray that all, all of the stops that we had in this long and difficult journey has come to an end. We'll all be together next year. B'Yushalayim Habanuya. Have an easy fast. Thank you. Again, we thank everybody. And we end with very simply. Based on Migdosh, and here will be a man with the same volcano we saw